I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, as we spend our time this morning studying a wonderful and enlightening, encouraging passage of Scripture on the transfiguration. Mark chapter 9. I already had a wonderful Father's Day today. I'm going to make you jealous, guys. At 6.15, I got a phone call from one of my sons at 6.15, yes, this morning, which I thought was great, and I was thrilled about it. And I couldn't believe it because he lives in California. So I asked him if it was 6 o'clock there. He said, no, no, I'm in North Carolina. Oh, okay. And he was about to get on a plane back to California. But he made my morning. And then... My wife got up, and I told her how much I like Dunkin' Donuts, the ones that have nothing on them but are just the donut. Oh, how good they are with coffee. Would you like me to go to Dunkin' Donuts? Oh, sure. So I look like a donut because I love Dunkin' Donuts, and we had donuts this morning. So I have been richly blessed today. As a father, I can only hope that you gentlemen are experiencing something of the same. Well, this is a wonderful text of Scripture. This is a trailer to the great event that is coming. This is a preview of coming attractions, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. Look at this as we begin in verse 1 of Mark 9. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him." What a text for us this morning. It starts with a prediction that some of the disciples will not taste death until they see the 
kingdom of God. And then six days later, when they see it, Jesus does something hard for us to understand. He tells them to hush, hush about everything that he just took them up to the mountain to go see. They are ordered to actually stay silent about the most exciting event ever in their lives to that point. They couldn't even tell their buddies, the other disciples, until after Jesus was raised from the dead. And then the passage has all kinds of other interesting parts about it, things about Elijah, stuff about John the Baptist, and we'll unravel it all in time. But in order to get there, we need to start with a question. And let me introduce that question to you this way. Apparently, there is a story in the Koran uh, that a man is taken to see how beautiful heaven is. He's taken into paradise. And it's so beautiful that upon coming back to earth, he immediately kills himself so that he can go back to the place he was at. As I understand it, the story is told approvingly. But of course, it's wrong. One never can sin in order to gain the holy. We are meant to wait for the kingdom of God now in faith and all rightful duty that is right for us as Christians. So recently, I wonder if you would like to be like this man. A man from Indonesia longed for death. I wonder if you would long for death, maybe even this morning or last week. His name was Maga Gotho, and I'm sure I got that wrong. His birth certificate, which was independently verified, showed that he was born at the end of 1870. That's even older than some of you. In 2016, the man made worldwide fame not only as the world's oldest man at 145, but because he had only one request in life when he was asked by an Indonesian media outlet. The question was, what is it that you would like? And he said, just one thing, I want to die. A little less than two months ago at the end of April of this year, he got his wish, and he died at the age of 146. One of his grandchildren, who actually is older than anyone in this room, said, my grandfather has been preparing for his death ever since he was 122. (laughs) Now, if that is the question that you are asking I don't mean to diminish it. It may be, in fact, an expression of faith. It could be an expression of unbelief. I don't know what this particular man is experiencing right now, but the Christian faith clearly proclaims that there are two destinies and only two destinies for all flesh. One of them is bliss and glory in the presence of God in a resurrection body that is called glorious It's like that of Jesus' own resurrection body. And then there is another destiny for men that is all pain and agony and misery, also in a resurrection body that is designed by God in order to absorb eternal suffering. I wish for the former, for all of you, as does the Lord God, who in his word expressly says that it is his wish that all men be saved. 
that is, his revealed will and his desire. All men would turn to him and repent and embrace his son in faith. Nothing is held back from anyone who wishes to do that. But yet the reality is, is that there are individuals, of course, who do not want that. The Lord gives us in this passage this morning 13 verses in order to assure our hearts and to recommend to us and to build into us a more solid and substantial appreciation for resurrection. And well, it should because you need it. You live your day-to-day life in a physical body, dealing usually between some place between a rock and a hard place in your life right now. And it's almost like there's almost this easy sense in which I can trust Jesus for my resurrection, and so therefore I don't need to think about it very much, but boy, I have a hard time trusting him for my day-by-day life and the pressures that I'm under. And of course, you know that Scripture would want to reverse that. It would, it would have us lift up our eyes away from all the things that you're going through right now for a moment, for a season, for a worship service, to just let those things realize that they're going to be here afterward, but to gain a perspective this morning of the things of eternity that are so sweet, so wonderful, that the things of this life become not only palpable, but even useful in the pursuit of that which is the more important. The Holy Spirit of God in infinite wisdom has given to us this morning such a precious text in order to give us alleviation from the days of this earthly journey, this this earthly pilgrimage, you say, and in order to gain our heart's attention, affection for the life to come. All right, well, let me just kind of give you some of the background as we lead into this. This particular passage is called The Transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three texts, it is preceded by the same event. That is, Peter's confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The very confession upon which the church is built. That confession that you are the Son of the living God, is the very bedrock of our salvation. You can see it back in the previous text here. Back in 8.29, Jesus continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. That's the shortened form. And then in verse 30, he warned them to tell no one about him. We'll talk about that a little later too. So in this text, then, you have a build-up coming upon a correct confession, a correct understanding, a heartfelt truth of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the Father. And so, yet Peter, frankly, and all of the disciples with him then express unbelief in Jesus immediately after the confession. You probably know the story as Jesus goes on to say, look, I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to, be, going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified and after three days rise from the dead. And of course, what does Mr. Encouragement Peter do? He says, no such thing, Lord. You'll never do anything with me around. You'll never do any such thing. 
Mr. Discouragement, actually. And so that's kind of how the chapter ends with the truth of Jesus really reproving that. And then coming into a situation where he can more fully and gladly express some of the realities of what he's going to accomplish. But personally, for him, the Lord, the Father brings about the transfiguration. The Father sends both Moses and Elijah to encourage him so that he is encouraged, strengthened, and has that continued mindset as he pursues the cross. And also, there is the other reality that he's going to give, the Lord is Jesus, to give the disciples, three of them, such a wonderful truth that's going to strengthen them after he rises from the dead about a year hence from this event. I'm going to take you through this passage, and I'm going to break it into five divisions over the 13 verses. The first division is this Jesus' prediction of power. Join me, please, back in verse 1. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now make no mistake, when he says here that they will see the kingdom of God, he's not talking about mentally perceiving it only, but actually physically with their eyes seeing the kingdom of God. This is the great thing to be able to see. And specifically, at the end of the verse, that it has come with power. What does that mean? What is it that the three disciples are going to see? Well, they're going to see Jesus, they're going to see Moses, they're going to see Elijah, and those three are going to be changed in order that these three men can see what resurrection looks like. Therefore, the transfiguration is a revelation of the power of God in producing resurrected men. The power that he speaks of there at the end of verse 1 is the power of God in producing resurrection. I had a man tell me recently, he was in my past church, and he had gone away from the Lord substantially. And when I met him years later, he had just recently come back to the Lord. I think he had actually truly come to the Lord for the first time. And I asked him, what is it that brought you back? And he said, "I I was thinking about the Lord's power, and I was reading in Ephesians, it talked about how he raised Jesus with power, and I said to myself, that is a lot of power. He was right. Shame on me for just kind of reading the words and just so often glossing over them. What an amazing amount of power resurrection actually is. Now, Interesting that Jesus makes this prediction here in verse 1 when he says some of you guys who are standing here are going to see the kingdom of God, but there's no mention in any of the Gospels that they started to fight over the privilege. Would you? If you were there and you were told that some of the gang of 12 could go see the kingdom of God, would you start to hang close to Jesus? Would you start to tug on his cape? You know? Would you start to say, I really, really want to see it? The implication of our three texts this morning, of both in Matthew and Mark and Luke, is that none of them did that. Oh, give them a topic that's worldly, like who's going to be in power, who's going to be number one, and then they start to bicker and fight all over the place. But give them something like see the kingdom of God, something no flesh has ever really seen before them, 
And what do they do? They seem to be silent, meek. Well, all of that to just say this was the ultimate A-list invite to come see the kingdom of God. Who wouldn't want to fight to see that? But what's important here, and especially because this account gets some pretty speculative interpretations, is Jesus' explanation here in verse 1 of seeing the kingdom of God. The entire plot line of the Bible hinges around the kingdom of God. Adam forfeited the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. Israel was granted a mediatorial way in order to inhabit the kingdom of God on earth. They rejected it. Jesus came and Jesus won the kingdom of God, but he had to do so by dying and raising from the dead. So the kingdom of God is, is the plot line through all of Scripture. You could almost say it was granted by God to man. Man lost it. The second Adam came. He won it. Everything else is just details. But here you have a, a circumstance where the kingdom of God is something to be seen. Now, I just want to say to you this. The church is not the kingdom of God. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? The kingdom of God is like talking with Moses and Elijah in physically glorified bodies. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's not like leaning over the pew and talking with Aunt Sue and Uncle Harry in the pew in front of you about politics. This is not the kingdom of God. This is not the be-all and end-all right here. This is kind of a time to prepare for loyalty to King Jesus and to be made ready for that wonderful time. And really, like Jesus predicted here, more than likely, you and I are going to die before we see the kingdom of God. It's just unusual that these men were unable to see it. But pretty much, unless Jesus returns, we're all going to die before we see the kingdom of God. Okay, that's point number one, Jesus' prediction. Seeing the kingdom of God, some of his disciples will physically see the kingdom. Well, what does it look like when you see it? Well, that's our next point, the transfiguration. Join me in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. If you're into biblical geography, if you've been to the land of Israel, most likely this is Mount Hermon, way up in the north near Caesarea Philippi, where, that, where Peter's confession was made. It could have been Mount Tabor, it maybe even could have been Mount Arbel. It isn't specified in any of the texts. But since it says a high mountain, most likely in that very northern region, Mount Hermon, where sometimes snow doesn't even melt off it in the summer, even though it's a hot climate over there. It's a very 14,000-foot high mountain. And what happens immediately at the end of verse 2 here is that Jesus is transfigured before them. The Greek word metamorpho. You know what that works out to be, right? Metamorphosis. And you know that metamorphosis has to do with change, great change, in this case, visible change. 
physical change that was easily seen. Now, when you as a Christian were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you weren't outwardly changed. You were greatly changed on the inside as to who you were and every part of your personality and every part of your motives and every part of your psyche and every part of your emotions, every part of you has been affected by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that you had upon believing on Christ that you received. But that's an internal change. Here we're talking about an entire change that goes on. In Matthew's text, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Today would not be a good day to illustrate that, would it? But maybe yesterday, or maybe one of the other days when it was really hot, and the sun was at full beam, and you can never look at it. You never even do, do you? You never look straight at it. And so therefore, you can bet that the disciples, the three of them, never did look straight at Jesus' face since it was that bright. But I like the way that Mark writes it here at the end of at verse 3. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can make them white. Man, imagine a Tide commercial for that. I think what's going on here is that the clothing itself hides the glory of his body underneath the clothing. In other words, the body underneath the clothing is far more radiant, far more white, far more light. Essentially, that's really what it is than the clothing. The clothing is merely hiding the glory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection visage. So think of the clothing not as revealing, but as hiding. The transfiguration of Jesus then gives a clearer expression to his hypostatic union than he had in his incarnate condition. According to Isaiah, people looked at Jesus And when they looked at him, they yawned, or they looked at him and they were somewhat unimpressed. He may have, frankly, been an ugly man. The way that Isaiah 53 reports, nobody looked at him and thought anything of him. So apparently he didn't fit the figure of a Greek Adonis. He certainly didn't look like those Jesuses that you see painted in Swedish churches with the strong features and the flowing curly blonde locks going down the back. But here, this is a majestic appearance of Christ that is simply beyond our capacity in the flesh to rightly understand. This is him actually giving a clearer expression of his union of the full humanity with the full deity. This is a a kind of a preliminary of what it's like to have glorified flesh his face shining like the sun, his body outshining like out of every pore and having to have clothing to to cut it down so that they could remain, the disciples could remain in the same place. So you see now what happens is that his humanity here is beginning to shine out more like his deity. You're seeing a greater integrity then in the hypostatic union. Rather than him looking like just any other man, you now see that his humanity is beginning to more accurately reflect his deity. And so in the sense, you don't have merely the incarnate Christ 
who looked like every other man, but rather now you're starting to see him in this text as for who he is. This then would have been deeply attractive spiritually to anybody looking at him. But then there was a problem. You see, his inner glory is radiating out through his clothing. And, and it's obviously a picture of what happens in the resurrection of the blessed, this great, great change. But the reality is, is that it's not going to present itself emotionally to the three men who are there with any kind of genuine attractive force. It's actually going to scare them. But before we get there, and that's kind of brought out a little later in the text, just consider it for a moment of what it would be like to have such a body, or what it might be like to actually have such profound strength and energy coursing through you that you needed to have clothing in order to protect others from seeing it, and even that clothing itself actually reveals quite a bit. Imagine your face glowing like a hot red fire. Imagine the strength that is involved in such a thing. And then you would understand maybe some of the words of our beloved Apostle Paul. He wrote this in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The idea being that everything around us right now is in anxious, bated breath, waiting to see the saints of glory in their resurrection. That is why God made the earth. That is why God sent the Son. That is why you are living now, in order to come to understand and esteem and appreciate the high value of resurrection. It is so far beyond our day-to-day life. A resurrection body, whatever you may say else about it, it is one thing from this text, it is light. It is power, as he says at the end of verse 1. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We who love Christ are waiting for the resurrection of the just. We are now putting off sin. We are putting off lust. We are cleaving to God. We yearn for His holy ways. We want to be more obedient, not less obedient. We want to understand Him. We want to serve Him. We want to pray. We want to understand His Word. We want to walk in faith day in and day out. This isn't merely truth of, oh, won't it be wonderful by and by when I get there. This is truth that has an effect on who we are right now. To even consider your own body having such power, having such glory, being marked by light is to consider something that is beyond your present experience but is radically, meaning at the root, guaranteed in the Scriptures through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For certainly if you believe that Jesus raised from the dead, then also we believe that those who are in Christ shall also be raised from the dead. And so we just yearn for Him. We want Him. We want to serve Him. We want to know Him. We want to understand more about this body. We yearn for that which is the future. And this is why we as Christians live off of 
hope. Not hope that is a maybe hope, but hope that is genuine hope, certain hope, guaranteed hope. And so this is the transfiguration. Our beloved Lord is greatly transfigured. He is glorious. And after Mark describes the transfiguration, we move on to our third point now, his heavenly counselors. Join me in verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. They had no words for the three men. They only had words for Jesus. Well, I think you might know, many of you would, that these two men are the major players in Israel's history of redemption. Moses is the great lawgiver. Elijah is the great prophet. And according to Luke's account of this very event, they two appeared in glory. They too looked like Christ. They too had light effulgencing itself out from their bodies, irradiating itself out from their bodies and their faces, not just the parts that were exposed, but even through their clothing then. They are like Christ. You are seeing them. They were seeing them in resurrection glory. Moses being the great lawgiver, isn't he, of human history. All of Western history is based upon the laws that he wrote down in the first five books of the Bible. No system of laws given throughout human history in any place have surpassed the Mosaic laws. Here we are, 3,400 years in, and there is no system of justice that is so equitable, so consistent, so merciful. Our system of justice, here I'm going to opine a little bit, our system of justice can take a man who is likely guilty by over 50 women and exonerate him in a hung jury. It's a system of legality that has many flaws. Law of Moses, so, so far above that which was given. Moses was there on the mountain. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets of God, not in the volume of his writings, not that, but in his purity of heart, in his zeal for the things of God. When you think of Elijah, think of one man standing against an entire government of Israelite apostates. Think of one man who prays and God, out of breaking his covenant with Israel withholds rain for three and a half years at the prayers of this one man. Luke's gospel tells us that both Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his departure. That's the word that's used, his departure, meaning his crucifixion, the means by which he would leave life on this earth. So, these men come. They are the heavenly counselors, and they're a gift to Jesus, not to the men, but to Jesus from the Father. And if you think about it just a little bit, you realize that these two men would have been two of Jesus' childhood heroes, whose deeds and teachings he had read and memorized since childhood. They were gifts sent to strengthen him, so that he would succeed at his God-given mission to die on the cross 
as a sin atoning substitute so that any man or woman could have complete forgiveness before God and know the grace of God and the power of God in the gospel to be adopted as a child of God and to be guaranteed a place in the resurrection of the just. These two men accomplished their mission. Well, this is all very happy. So what happens next? Well, there is sadly a carnal response to all of this. Here we were, we were talking about good and heavenly things, but oh, earth always interrupts. Verse 5, join me there. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to answer, for they had become terrified. Hmm. You ever get the feeling that the transfiguration would have gone on and on if Peter hadn't opened his big mouth? I mean, if he just hadn't said anything, they could have enjoyed it. Jesus and Moses and Elijah could have had a much longer talk if he had just been willing to just take his rightful place as lowly guy. But no, not Peter. I'm here to serve. (laughs) But my question to Peter is this. Peter, why? Why? Why would you want to stay in a place with three transfigured, in glory people while you yourself are stuck there in your fallen flesh? Well, that, what, I mean, Peter even says, I think it's what, back in verse 5, it's good for us to be here. No, 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 Peter, not good. You don't want to be here in your flesh. You want to be there, you want to be there in a resurrection. I want to be there in your flesh. That's going to be temporary. And in fact, you see that even in this section right here. It's just kind of all of a sudden going south here, isn't it? You don't want to be an onlooker when it comes to the kingdom of God. You want to be a participant of it. This is just one of Peter's many I-can't-handle-the-truth moments in the New Testament. He's just getting too much. It's coming at him too fast. It's too brilliant. And, and so as we all do, at some point we, we close down when spiritual truth gets too much. We can't handle it. It's too bright. It's too brilliant at times. We all have to grow at our own pace. Peter has to do that as well. So many people think, you know, that, oh, if I could just go to heaven, then it would be peaceful. But the fact is that seeing the kingdom of God does not produce peace in us. Actually, what seeing the kingdom of God in our flesh does is it produces horror. It it produces distress. In fact, seeing the kingdom of God is scary. Notice how verse 6 ends. They became terrified. Why would that be? Well... Primarily because transfigured bodies are holy bodies, and seeing something holy creates devastating fear in us. This is why Peter wants to build three tabernacles. Hey, Matt, if you could help her, appreciate it. Thank you. 
See, the reason why Peter wants to build three tabernacles, which were basically booths made out of branches and tracing themselves after an Israelite festival, is this is Peter's way of expressing that he knows that he is among the holy. It's like building a temple on a mountain for where the deity will come down and dwell in a temple and stay there and therefore making the mountain sacred. Now, I I take it from, from all of this that Jesus, while he was transfigured, was not fully resurrected as he is now because the reality is Scripture says no man can see God and die. And no man can see God. If they do, they die. But these men didn't die here. So I'm taking it as kind of axiomatic that though they saw the glory of God, though they saw Jesus transfigured, they did not see full resurrection. They saw a version of it enough so that they could truly say they saw the kingdom of God. Because if they had seen Jesus in his fully resurrected body, then by all means... Oh, thanks, Matt. I was actually asking about the crying baby. Thanks. The idea would be if they had actually seen Jesus in all of his glory, the, the picture would be that, that the fear and the effect on the human body would be so much that the body would rupture, erupt from the inside just out of, out of the reality of fear of the holy. So I take it here that there's something going on whereby they're getting resurrection but they're not getting full resurrection. And that certainly seems to make a great deal of sense from the text. You know, that's this reality of this glorious point here. The resurrection is occurring. It's showing itself on earth. Join me in verse 7. This is how it starts to end, though. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. It all ended in a split second. Seeing Christ's glory in the transfiguration, it was all so real, but it was like looking at a watercolor in the rain. You start to look at it. You start to think you're getting it. It's all blurry like a Monet, but then it's in the rain and it all just washes away. And Now it's nothing but blur and messed together colors, and it's no more. This is the way it would be for us right now. We we try with our minds, don't we, to figure out what it's going to be like in the future, what it's going to be like in heaven. And as soon as we start to grasp something, we lose it. As soon as we think that we mentally comprehend a part of it, it gets lost within the greater whole. We're just left dependent upon the words of sacred scripture, which make us long for a clearer description, but a clearer description we rarely get. This is about as clear as it gets right here in the transfiguration. Fact is, is that in our flesh right now, we weren't made for the kingdom of God. This is why I shake my head at all these ministries that love to call themselves kingdom ministries. (laughs) You ever think about it? How can they be kingdom ministries if they're in the flesh? 
It's not a representation of the kingdom. Kingdom life church. Give me a break. They have the furthest thing from the kingdom. There is no kingdom that is visible at this time. And there is no kingdom life that is happening at this time. Kingdom life is going to be marvelous, rich, full, miraculous, powerful. There's going to be no tears. There's going to be no crying. There's going to be no sorrow. There's going to be no more funeral parlors. That's what it's going to be like in the kingdom (laughs) when it comes to earth. But this right here, there are no kingdom ministries going on right now. Right now, what happens is God hides himself. God hides himself. You actually see this here in in verse 7. This is just merely a cloud that comes down and overshadows them. It's not the cloud of glory. It's just a cloud. And out of it, the Father speaks. This is really quite remarkable. The very fact that he would say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God very rarely speaks to men on earth with audible words. You ever think about it? Why doesn't God speak to men on earth? Well, a a good answer to that question, because we think to ourselves, well, if he would, it would make it so much easier for people to believe, for people to recognize his glory, for people to get uh, a message personally to them. Why doesn't God just speak from heaven to people? We all have that question. Well, there were a number of times when Jesus was on earth that Jesus did speak, that the Father, excuse me, spoke out of heaven. Do you remember those? Things like the baptism, things like the transfiguration. There were other times as well. There was one time, it's recorded in John chapter 12. God the Father speaks out of heaven, and he says to Jesus, and everybody, there's a ton of people around talking about Jesus. Jesus says, I want to glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Remember what the people did? They said, ah, it just thundered. We heard thunder. What they were doing was they heard the voice of God, but they were suppressing it. Their ears could not stand to hear the voice of God. It grated against them. They hate that voice, that sound. John Calvin, the great theologian from the, 16, from the 1500s, said that the reason God does not speak from heaven to men is because if he did, they would be terrified and no one would ever come to him. And so he put his communication in a book so that men may approach him and hear from him without fear. Profound point. It's God's mercy that he doesn't speak from heaven. So this makes this all the more significant here in your text. This is God speaking out of heaven. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Boy, is that significant. That comes right out of Psalm chapter 2, which is where the father promises the son to give him the nations as an inheritance. In other words, this is a promise that the Father gives to the Son, that you will indeed establish the kingdom of God on earth. Now we understand the connection to this entire passage. And then there's one word of wisdom, isn't there, at the end of verse 7. Did you see that? Listen to him. I want you to hold your finger here in the text, but I want you to turn forward almost all the way to the end of the New Testament to the little book of Second Peter. 
the little book of Second Peter, where Peter talks about this experience in the transfiguration. If you're there, Second Peter chapter 1, remember that Jesus is the word of the Father. And so the Father's simple word to man is listen to the word, listen to him. Remember, Jesus Christ is the exact representation and character of the Father. He is the Father's divine outshining. He is uncreated light of uncreated light. Jesus is the communication of the Father in full human form. Now begin in verse 13 with me in the first chapter, please. Peter writes, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Just a little side note. The word departure in verse 15 is the same word used in Luke's transfiguration account of Jesus, what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. They were talking to him about his departure. That would clue us in that maybe Peter's talking about the transfiguration. Well, that becomes very clear in the next set of verses. Verse 16, follow along. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What does that mean? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking here about the vision that he had in the transfiguration. We didn't make things up about him, he's saying. We saw with our eyes, and now we begin to see. Why did Jesus take these three? And why did he say, don't talk about this after my resurrection? Because I wanted you to give it to the churches. Follow along in verse 17. Peter continuing, For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the full text of what God the Father spoke at the transfiguration. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now we are secure. We know where we are. Peter is referring to the most profound experience of his life up until the time of Christ's own resurrection. But follow along in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. What's he saying here? Well, given the choice between a video of the transfiguration on YouTube that you could access anytime you wanted to, or having, it, having the word of God, what's called here the prophetic word, that's the written word, written down by prophets, which one is better? The video and the personal experience of seeing Jesus Christ in resurrection glory or the text of God that tells you that he came in resurrection glory. Peter's choice, and he counsels you, is the written, inscripturated, prophetic word. Notice how he describes it. You, in verse 19, do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, that's resurrection, and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, like a vision could be, right? 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, like often prophecies, people make prophecies do, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that includes him. So Peter takes the entire vision of the transfiguration and sublimates it under sacred Scripture. That's how highly this man regarded sacred Scripture. It was more important than what he saw on the mountain. You can flip back, if you would, please, to Mark chapter, Mark chapter 9. The prophetic word. And so that's where we come down, don't we, as Christians? We say, it really doesn't matter to me, you know, my experiences. It doesn't matter to me what kind of feelings, what kind of transcendent things I've experienced or seen or what other people have seen. Those are wonderful at times. Those are great, but I can't base my faith on those. I can only base my faith on the prophetic word which is made more sure. And that will keep me stable and walking in the ways of the Lord. You know, it's interesting that the transfiguration, this account that we're walking through, is not a favorite among preachers. In his book, The Training of the Twelve by A.B. Bruce, he wrote, quote, The transfiguration is one of those passages in the Savior's earthly history which an expositor would rather pass over in reverent silence. In the 1980s, a pastor referred to the transfiguration as, quote, arguably the most neglected portion of the Gospels that is preached on. I would think this makes for great preaching. You got clouds, you got voices, you got Moses, you got Elijah, you got clothing. Best of all, you got Peter's stupidity. It's a great thing to preach on, isn't it? I mean, there's illustrations everywhere. Human frailty, God's power. What's not to love? Well, here's the problem. What's the point of the transfiguration? Well, I think the last section here, we want to cover quickly 9 through 13. I think this last section here really clarifies the central point of the transfiguration, and that is that resurrection is the main feature of the kingdom of God. If somebody were to say to you, what's the kingdom of God like, and you answered one word, resurrection, you'd be 100% accurate. 100% accurate. What is the kingdom of God like, if you wanted to have that for your own theology? What is it like? It is resurrection. This is not the time for the kingdom right now. It's a future coming on earth. Now, I just want to cover the fifth point and tell you that there's a series of clarifications. Because anytime you're talking, about, you're talking about resurrection and things you've never experienced, we always need clarification, don't we? Notice in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word for order there, diastello, is like one of the strongest words to tell someone not to do something or to do something. It's the command of a Caesar. He's dead serious then when he tells them not to tell anyone. Apparently they never did until after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus then operated on a need-to-know basis. And he was doing this in order to forestall a lot of speculation about him and a lot of public knowledge that would then get circulated. And you can only imagine what the scribes and Pharisees and the elders and chief priests would do once they found out that Jesus was predicting that he was the owner of resurrection and that he had been resurrected. And he was saying that they would only do everything they could to bump up the time frame. They would say, let's get rid of this guy now. 
But Jesus owns the time frame. He will not die in Jerusalem until what? The Passover next spring. He's not going to go by their timing, and so he is delaying them. He's pulling it back. That's why if you flip back at verse chapter 8, verse their schedule to just get rid of him as soon as they possibly can. Jesus has it all under control when he's going to die. So here he does, he takes these three guys, his three most trusted men, Peter, James, and John, and he brings them up there in order to really provoke a discussion on the resurrection. Look at verse 10. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Doesn't that sound funny to you? Like, duh. Don't you know what resurrection means? It means rising from the dead. But they're like, well, what does it mean? That's interesting. They needed to understand it, actually. They needed to understand it with some specificity. Yeah, I can say it. Specificity. So that they could be leaders of the church. So that they could help Christians to understand the depth and the glories of the resurrection. So that brings on the next clarification that they sought. Verse 11, they came asking him, well, why is it then that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, can I just call a time out here? There's a piece of information behind the text here that we don't have here, and it's this, that everybody back then knew one thing, that before the kingdom of God comes to earth, Elijah comes back. Okay? Keep your ears here. Listen to Malachi chapter 4, the last verse of the Old Testament. God says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. For some of you, that might be the first time you've heard it, but if you grew up in Israel and you're kind of around religious talk, you better believe that when they talk about the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God and those things that happen at the end, you better believe they're, well, Elijah comes. Because what do they do in Passover? Don't they leave a chair open for Elijah so in case he comes, you know, they want to be welcoming guests, welcoming hosts? You kind of see that? So they just all understand this. You and I, maybe not so much, but now hopefully we do. And now we understand why they're, like, asking questions. Because where is Elijah if the kingdom of God, we just saw it. Why then does the scripture say Elijah came first? We haven't seen Elijah. The fact is that Jesus' enemies, the scribes, were rejecting Jesus because Elijah hadn't come back. You can trace that through the Gospel of John in John chapter 1. But what's great about this text is when they say, hey, doesn't, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Jesus agrees with them. Look at verse 12, the first part. He said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, just like the book of Malachi that I just read to you. But then he adds in a twist at the end of verse 12. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, what nobody got back then, what we get so plainly today, was that the Messiah had two comings. They only understood him to have one coming. But he had two comings, didn't he? The first coming in his incarnate flesh to die on a cross to make sacrifice for our sins, to rise from the dead in glorified flesh. But then a second time, according to the Old Testament scriptures, to come in glory and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So that's why he adds in 
I'm on my first coming. I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. That's shame. That's dishonor. In the Israelite system of of thinking about things, the person who is the most exalted, the most glorified, the most honored is the Messiah. Here, Jesus is reversing that, saying, I'm going to be shown the most contempt. I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of Man, but I'll be shown contempt. And then there's one final clarification that ties off the text. The question is, well, has Elijah come back yet? That's the kind of the, the question that Jesus answers in verse 13. And Jesus answers, yes, he has. Look at verse 13. I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did whatever they wanted to, just as it is written of him. So what's he saying? Well, Elijah came and John the Baptist. That's the fact. You could trace that back through another couple of scriptures. But when Elijah came in John the Baptist, what did they do with John the Baptist? They killed him. The point being, if Israel had repented at John the Baptist preaching as the Lord wanted them to, then you can be sure that Jesus would have brought the resurrection kingdom to earth. But Elijah came in John the Baptist. The Israelites rejected him, and therefore Jesus did not bring the kingdom of God to earth. And so therefore the rejection of John the Baptist would lead to the rejection of Jesus, which would lead to him dying on the cross to fulfill the eternal plan of God. That was always going to happen anyways, and yet there was a good faith offer made to Israel. Israel rejected it. They killed those sent from God to them, and yet the mighty and powerful, unalterable, guaranteed resurrection kingdom of God is coming, beloved, and it's not far from you. It's coming. It's guaranteed. It will come. And it doesn't require human agreement to make it happen. In fact, what God does is he normally works his will through human rebellion. Which means, beloved Christian friend, heart of my heart this morning, whether you're 145 years old or whether you're 45 years old, that whatever level you are crying out to be glorified, to go to heaven, whatever extent you aren't because you have young children, because life is good or otherwise, young in your faith maybe, The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. Resurrection is coming. And your future is that like unto that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is glorious. It is light of light. It is resurrection. Let's pray. And I close out our service with my prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not destined us merely to be spirits flitting around the universe, but you have destined us to be eternal beings, eternal souls with eternal bodies, existing forever in love, unity, worship, delight, reverence, perfection, strength, and glory. Oh, what a difference it is from our daily experience. So as we've taken a few minutes now to ponder the wonderful truths that you give us in this wonderful passage of sacred scripture, we rest in it. It's ours. The victory is won. There is no more sting of death, for there is a resurrection that's guaranteed. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for accomplishing the mission. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. And you're dismissed.